Good evening, and uh, welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, weekly magazine for hams, home brewers, and experimenters across the fruited plain. Every other week we meet here at the uh, appointed hour of 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time and 0100 Zulu. I am George, N2APB, and with me here is my trusty uh, co-host and longtime friend and real smart guy, Joe, N2CX. And we are really pleased to be here again this week in episode 82 of Chat with the Designers. This um, is a continuation of our Elmer 101 series, where we are talking about the uh, Small Wonder Labs SW30 Plus transceiver and breaking it down and talking about it stage by stage, and hopefully you guys are building it up stage by stage. This week we're going to be talking about installment uh, number five is the Receive Mixer. We'll get to that in just a little bit, but as we've indicated, we've come to have a, a pretty interesting section here at the at the start of each show. Joe, don't you think, and with new new products and things of that nature, huh? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to, trying to keep our finger on the pulse of What's happening in uh, QRPM radio, anyway? Yeah, you to try and keep up with everything these days is a challenge. Oh, man. I don't know how you do it, but uh, my email browser is kind of like my reference to an awful lot of stuff that's happening here in the shack and my own interests and driving chat for the designers and stuff. How is it that you handle yours, Joe? <laughs> uh, I have, um, yeah, I use email browser. It's, it's interesting. In order to keep track of things, I see a lot of uh, stuff on various mail lists and everything. I often mail myself uh, notes on what to uh, check out later <clears throat> so that I don't inadvertently delete it. Oh, yeah. And then I put that in a folder that I can refer back to. I know what you mean about that. This week we're, we're going to be, we have a lot of stuff to cover this time, Joe. And you and I have been having a ball kind of putting this show together for the last couple of weeks. And um, I've had this, this idea... Oftentimes in the magazines, whether it's QRP Quarterly or what are the magazines that are there out there, Joe, that are kind of current and talking about QRP stuff? Yeah, there is uh, uh, the Archie, QRP Archie. Um, the RSGB oh, uh, yeah. has a bulletin, uh, not a bulletin, but a magazine. The, the name of it escapes me at the moment. But they have a QRP um, column in there and a number of other columns that are of interest to uh, QRPers and homebrewers, QSC to some extent, although they're very general. I certainly keep track of those two. Oh, yeah. Um, I think you're thinking of RSGB, aren't you? Is that the magazine? Yes, the RSGB, but I'm That's trying to cool think of the one. name of the darn thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is the name. I'm not sure. I just got mine, by the way. I renewed my subscription. You'll be happy to hear that because I've been borrowing yours. <laughs> so, yeah. So now, no, but you know but something you know, else? Hey, Dave, go Dave, ahead. Go ahead. It's Radcom. Ah, good. Joe, you were right on. There was something else. RSGB is the organization. Um, I wonder, uh, does anybody else around uh, here listening um, tonight on the show get Radcom magazine? Hey, by the way, um, Joe and I are trying out a little bit of a new scheme for uh, to, to kind of help the, the, uh, the dialogue portion of the show. So you'll see both of our mics keyed up. But that's not to say that you cannot break in. So just as Dave did a moment ago, Feel free to just uh, kind of chime in, and we'll, we'll let you get take the mic there for a minute and and ask a question, maybe toss in your your observations too. That's always welcome here on chat with the designers. You you might want to mention how we're preventing the audio feedback. Ah, good point. 
or the, what we'd have to do, of course, is put the headphones on. I have headphones on, Joe has headphones on on his side, and that prevents the feedback that sometimes we, well, oftentimes we hear if two people try to talk because your speaker feeds into the microphone. You know, we're all radio guys here, so we, we kind of know what that that is. Although, not all of us know what microphones are, Joe. I tell you, I have to brush the dust off of mine sometimes. <laughs> I have to brush the dust off many things uh, when I need to use them. Oh, indeed. So what I was getting at a moment ago was that uh, many of us home brewers are um, into the, uh, oh, I have to mention this. Obi mentioned that on the chat section that he always uses the headphones to keep his wife happy. Now that could have a multiple, multiple meaning there, Obi, but I think we know what you mean. Um, and uh, th that can be kind of fun either way you want to do it. But many of us have accessories all over the table, all over the bench, all over the table, oftentimes just in our minds. And what I wanted to do and what Joe and I have been having a ball is kind of putting together this thing called the anatomy of a homebrew station. Now, hopefully you are tuned into the whiteboard, the chat with the designer whiteboard that we use for presenting. And we have a nice diagram there that's only a start of what we have been envisioning to have uh, represent all the different kinds of accessories that uh, are thought to be possible, not just with the SW30, but in, with many of our rigs in, in general. Joe, what kind of rigs do you have on, you know, QRP types of rigs do you have there uh, at your station? <laughs> Let me count the ways. I, I have almost every CW or PSK31 um, uh, rig that... Uh, K1SWL and N1G ever designed these small wonder labs rigs. I also have a um, NorCal 40 rig. I have uh, they um, one rig sponsored by them was a 20 meter thing, which had a very very uh, strong receiver. The name escapes me, but they made it for 20, and I think they made it for 30 as well. Mm -hmm. And probably my favorite is the um, the old blue um, darn Ellicraft rig. The first one they had that was Molly Band for the Sierra. The Sierra, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's, that was my favorite. I I should sell it and get the money for it, but I love that darn thing. I I can't seem to get rid of it. And I have dribs and drabs of other other little little uh, low power things around. Those are the main ones. My favorite, of course, is my uh, most frequent acquisition, the KX3. Mm -hmm. That that is a great radio. It's an SDR. It's got all kinds of bells and whistles. And uh, that's what I take on my uh, portable outings, and particularly these days, uh, national parks on the air. That's a that's a great little radio. Yeah, I've been starting to use the KX3 that Larry loaned me for field day. I haven't given it back yet. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping, but I don't think, um, but I'm hoping that he's not going to notice that he's missing it. Um, but it, it truly could plug right into the center of this diagram, just oh, as yeah. we have shown the... Uh, the SW30. So let me just take a, a round, um, go around the, what they call, around the horn, since I'm missing the Oreos game that's on right now. I'll at least get some lingo in there. What we have is the, of course, the SW30 is, is, a, uh, is a CW rig, and it's got some of the basic AF out and key in, and you got frequency controls on the front panel and whatnot. We're all pretty familiar with that. And by the way, just as a reminder for those of you joining so far, we're going to be getting to the actual Elmer portion of this uh, of the program, maybe in about 15 minutes or so. We're covering some interesting general stuff here that 
we wanted to kind of cover. But what what we envision this diagram as being is kind of a roadmap, as, as I described up at the top there, uh, just in the text above the, the diagram, kind of a, a roadmap to functions that you can add to the SW30. By the way, you can add it in that really nifty uh, um, blank uh, enclosure that's now pictured atop the main SW30 enclosure. So that red box above is available. And we'll get to that in just a little bit, but in a nutshell, Craig AA0ZZ has now got that for sale on his website, and the link is a little bit farther down the page. And uh, a number of us have some of these on order already. And you better move quickly because I don't think they're going to last too long. It's just a superb little design. And what you see laid out in this diagram, Joe, is can actually almost everything can be stuffed into one or more of them. <laughs> you have three, three tall or set and side by side. I think uh, it makes a nice kind of a uh, probably best for the bench with all these different gadgets and such. You might need to keep it on the bench instead of taking it out in the field. But what the heck? I mean, all of oh, this. Oh, yeah. It's great for cutting down the clutter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me take a quick rundown. You'll, you might see a little bit of a common theme in here. But I'll also just remind everybody that what we have here is um, each one of these things can be a project and likely will be a project that is featured in our the projects portion of the Chat with the Designer uh, website. We've seen some of them already. And in fact, we've started talking about some of them already. We've mentioned the, let's just talk about the um, audio output, the AF output. In the audio output, uh, we've got, um, uh, you see represented there an audio bandpass filter, a BPF filter. And last time we talked about the laser beam digital filter from Soda Beams. We're not going to cover all of this again, but I've, uh, while I was away last week, I they, I received my package from them, and I've got uh, a couple of those, a CW version and an SSB version. Also, Dave, 87JT, likes to, uh, he's been playing with a Hypermite just above that from the four-state QRP group. And he says he's pretty delighted with that. But placing an audio filter on the output of this is, uh, of our little rig here, is definitely a uh, an advantageous thing from a performance standpoint, audio performance. And then, of course, you can... I indicated an LM386, Joe, and there, there's a bunch of different versions and better versions of the, that simple audio amp, is there not? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's some newer uh, chips as well, but uh, yeah, Andy, 386 is uh, kind of the, for those who remember, it's kind of the uh, LM341 uh, as it was to op amps, mm -hmm. the most common uh, audio amp chip, very handy for uh, adding an external speaker with a little more punch. Yeah, it has its problems or limitations. Not too many, but for the purists, there are lower noise versions of it and higher power versions of it, and you can compensate it out the yin-yang in order to make sure it's nice and stable. Um, and, of course, I, I put a speaker there, not just because that's the ultimate end point for the audio, but just think if you could put a speaker built into the top of, that, uh, into the top of an accessory case, that's a really nice place for that to go. Let's see, what's another obvious one? Um, the output. Of course, the uh, what, what's labeled as the antenna output of the rig. There, there's a whole chain of things that we're probably familiar with. There's a 5-watt amplifier, a 20-watt amplifier, 
um, and a bandpass filter. Those typically are the way that we can boost from the two watt level, the native two watt level, Joe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Two watts um, and, and get a little bit more power output. So, and then um, some things that I'm, I'm giving away the hand here as far as all the cool things that we have yet to look forward to here and, and chat with the designers, but our good friend, um, Ken, VA3KMD, has been working on and he's been sharing the details with me. A really cool, simple ATU, antenna tuning unit, that uh, very similar to, you know, like what, uh, what uh, Elecraft uses and other um, automatically switched capacitors in and out and inductors and so on. So that's, that's an easy project that we, Joe and I, see coming along sometime. And Joe, what are a couple, I, I ran out of my ideas for the power and SWR. What are some of the other commercial, well, on the market, not commercial, but, uh, you know, homebrew projects around well, notables? Uh, of course, there's, uh, if you're talking about manual ATUs, there's always the uh, the Z-Match. Oh, there are many, yeah. many implementations of Z-Match. It's a very, very handy wide range tuner. Oh, it is. And uh, the beauty of it is that it's automatically balanced. So it works very well with uh, balanced lines mm-hmm. instead of having to fiddle with balance, which which can be awkward uh, depending on your impedance level. Yeah. Um, and of course, there um, you can do uh, Chinese copies of some of the other things. Like there's been manually switched uh, LC uh, tuners that are kind of handy for uh, QRP, mm-hmm. stealing designs from uh, an old one from um, um, darn uh, Steve Weber. KD1JV. Mm-hmm. I've duplicated that, and it's handy. Low power, but, uh, you know, if you don't mind flipping a couple of switches, it's very good for uh, random length wire antennas. I love oh, yeah. that. Yeah, and you want to put in, you have power SWR, but I'm, I'm just going to say it now. If you have an ATU, an antenna tuning unit, particularly the rig that doesn't like high SWR, I recommend using one of the resistive bridge SWR sensors. Well, that's what you used will, in the um, uh, the rainbow tuner. Rainbow tuner, yeah, and mm-hmm. that segues into your next box there: power and SWR. Power and SWR. The more power to you, Joe. Less power to you, seventy-two. Oh, okay. The uh, there's a number of uh, designs. Anything from um, experimental methods for RF design has some great uh, circuits in there, and of course, there's always a your uh, your QST and QEX. Uh, we'll we'll be taking a project or one of those projects and kind of uh, doing it for possible your choice. We'll have it available uh, in use with the SW30 in a nice AA00ZZ uh, accessory box. So, uh, seriously, Craig's uh, uh, box there is just super utility utilitarian in nature. Oh, and you mentioned antenna, Joe. Did you catch my my symbol there for the antenna, the, my image that I used there? Yeah, rabbit ears. Yeah. Should have made a left horn in Albuquerque. <laughs> oh. The, uh, is that pointed down toward uh, KD or 87JT down there? There you go. Oh, okay. And the TR switch. Now, this has been kind of a dream of mine, and by gum, I've got the parts. I just haven't had a chance to work on that design we did a while back, Joe. Um, I really want to get a, a TR switch, an electronic TR switch going. I thought no, nothing better than a QRP type of situation like this and, um, you know, and uh, make a nice project board for anybody who wants to switch back and, you know, use something besides relays, right? Oh, yeah. And, and a universal thing, too. 
to uh, switch in various things like uh, like the amplifiers you're talking about there. Yeah, good idea. Hey, how about the RF uh, preamp? Is that some, is that a reality kind of thing that that's possible with us here? Um, it's mainly used for the higher bands, um, not so much 30 meters nor 20 meters, but if you get up 15, 10, those bands. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another thing you might want to do, and it's kind of blue sky, is you could even put a transverter in this and uh, you know, uh, look at a small segment of some other band um, and a preamp, particularly if you're looking, if you're looking at the segment of um, uh, six meters where the uh, weak signal stuff is, uh -huh. you could carry, you could uh, cover that with uh, the tuning of the SW30 and um, use the, the uh, TR switch to switch that in and out along oh, with the uh, SW30. That reminds me, and it's still sitting back in my shelf. You know my shelves in my back room, Joe. The um, uh, Jim Corchy, uh, K8IQI? Yes. Okay, so one of Jim's designs was a transverter, a 4017, now that I recall that, a 4017. Um, obviously, it converted between 17 meters and 40 meters, and it's a board that would fit really nicely, right, in that accessory case. It's almost the perfect size. So there, there you go. Another, another uh, opportunity for putting. Oh, and batteries. You see the batteries toward the bottom there. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, Joe, you love uh, rechargeables, don't you? Yeah, I'm looking at that rechargeable you have in the picture. Yeah, that looks like the Bioeno thing that yeah. I use for my yeah. Napota. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a really good battery. Yeah, I chose it. And it's it. a lot safer than the normal lithium ions. Mm -hmm. So lithium, lithium iron phosphate, which not quite as energy dense, but it's a heck of a lot safer. Mm -hmm. And alkalines, you can always keep a, a bag full of those whenever your ones go go dry. But uh, and get them from the drugstore when you need it. But uh, you can envision a nice little holder in an accessory box that has these things here too. Um, the digital panel meter, uh, rather pedestrian, but and and maybe not exactly that same size or, or type, but. I think uh, I really enjoy my volt and ampere <laughs> milliamp um, meters on some of my equipment here that you get them for like $2.95 um, on eBay and uh, clip them to your circuit. And it's nice to give a constant indication of what your uh, what your receive side current is or key downs current and what the status of your batteries are there. Gee, that's built into the KX3. Oh, geez, there you go again. <laughs> Man, do you have stock in them or what? No. <laughs> now we get to some of the interesting stuff on the upper left-hand side, and we'll go quickly here. But um, first of all is the keyers. Um, in fact, we'll be talking a little bit about this in just a moment with uh, Craig describing his latest and greatest that uh, we can all put into that accessory box or the native um, uh, SW30 enclosure itself. Um, shown there is the uh, just a kind of a printed circuit board view of the Easy Keyer 2i. It's the internal version of Craig's Easy Keyer that has uh, uh, not as many functions and certainly not as many controls and hence it's not quite as, uh, it's more affordable and easier to mount. And Craig will talk about that in just a minute. But uh, down below is the DigiSpark Keyer. Now, since we mentioned the Digi, you remember the DigiSpark uh, uh, boards that we talked about last time, Joe? 
I have a box of 10 of them sitting on my table downstairs. I, I got mine too when I was away. That was sitting on my porch when I returned. But Mike was one step ahead of us. W-A-A-B-X-N is one step ahead of us. And uh, he had some of those already. And he went to work on this just as soon as the show ended last week. And uh, he got a, um, um, a minimalistic uh, uh, keyer, uh software and minimal interface built for that board that's shown right there. So again, how much did the boards cost, Joe? Uh, there's something like a buck sixty nine each with free shipping. Yeah, a dollar sixty nine with free shipping. Oh man, I don't know. Have to have to spring for even more of those. But uh, <laughs> Mike got that going, and I know that I'm going to build that up and see how it uh, how it looks and have some fun with it. So um, good going on you for you, Mike. That that's good stuff. And um, I put in the uh, uh, the new PSK Morse keyboard. This is a keying. Uh, it's a keying. The keying function is supported by the new PSK, which is still a strong strong production and available. And some guys are starting to repackage that thing, Joe. Oh my gosh! It oh just, really? It just I hadn't noticed. It just dawned on me. Oh my gosh! Almost. Yeah, put it in that out. red box. I think it will almost fit. <laughs> oh my gosh, Craig, you did it again. You didn't even know it. But uh, whether you take the the new PSK and repackage it, or maybe just take the disc pick out of it, uh, or the software from it, and and put it in your own little board, there's a way that you can get a really full funk. I sh I should have put uh, Dave and Milt's name under that one because they were the instrumental people on the software and. Um, did a really fine job from all the functions that uh, are available in, in that functionality. No, I didn't say it. I didn't say that. that, that for all you listeners, uh, functionality is one of Joe's pet peeve words. Wh why is that, Joe? Ah, it just sounds like a made-up word. Sounds like yeah. a Mary Poppins word. Functionality. Yeah, there you go. Okay, now the point that I want to get to a little bit. Um, some of you might see the PSOC board all over the place there. Um, I don't know if Rick is with us here tonight. Rick uh, Goatman. Um, bu -bu 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 -bu. I forgot Rick's call sign. K3IND, I think. Um, so Rick is, uh, is, is really enamored with the PSOC, and I've kind of I've drunk some of that Kool-Aid with him, and uh, we are working on a Kier, uh software. The PSOC may be... If, if you're interested, you can look back on previous episodes. Uh, gosh, Joe, was that about uh, two years ago? Lord. Yeah, probably about two years ago, yeah. The PSOC is, a, is an IC, and that what you see on that little board there is just a kind of like the pinout interfaces for it. The PSOC uh, Programmable System on a Chip, PSOC, um, is a single chip that contains both analog and digital circuits, and it's programmable by means of internal, uh, essentially like internal switches that you're able to, to, to program. And it can perform filtering. It can perform DSP sort of functions. It can perform digital waveform generation. There's all sorts of stuff. Well, Rick has got, uh, got found an app note for a key in that thing. And you'll see it up above. I, I show it in a frequency display. There's there's some translation and 
that can be done in order to display the frequency that you, if you tap into the SW30 in the right spot, you can see it um, up above in the digital modes. Um, I'm collaborating with another fellow as far as putting uh, uh, kind of like a, a, a digital mode controller, in essence, uh, with the P-socket at, at the core of it. Um, and there's just a lot of things you can do with it. It's very inexpensive. Is, is that fast enough to do good uh, DSP? No. No, oh. you gotta you gotta be limited and you gotta be smart about uh, how deep your bit bucket is and all that sort of stuff. Okay, I assume with audio it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's some good app notes there. In the upper left-hand corner, Joe, we see the uh, what I what I labeled precision local oscillator. Now, you might remember, you guys might remember the uh, GPSDO, which da da da, it's coming. Uh, the motherboard and the final the final portion of that project is coming. But one could envision programming an output of the GPSDO to be 7.68 megahertz. Is that what yep. we have, John? Yep. And feed that into as uh, that sine wave in as the LO, and bump da da da. You've got yourself a uh, a very stable circuit, which would go well with, of course, or, or a stable um, oscillator. That would go well for holding stability for whisper and other digital mode uh, uh, type things. Um, the GPS module is there, so that you know, a couple of that project from Chap with the designers in there. On the left hand side, and I got this idea from oh gosh, a couple of guys have uh, done it here. Um, um, Mike might have done this. Um, I know that uh, Dave, um, a um, K1SWL, Dave Benson, has been working on such a project that takes an Arduino and um, the uh, and with some software produces an analog voltage that is pumped into the LO or the um, as the control voltage go into the uh, uh, to the variac that's in, in in this case in our SW. Varicap. 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 What did I say? Variac. <laughs> no. That's a whole other ballgame. No. Yep, but you get the idea for all the different things here that that uh, can be. And Joe and I haven't even we've only scratched the surface. And I think this is just kind of a an interesting way to represent the uh, opportunities that we home brewers just have available on the workbench. What do you think, Joe? Absolutely, <laughs> it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I you know I, I look at this uh, montage here and I think of even more things. No things I'll I'll never ever <laughs> so many things to do I'll never ever get to all of them. Ah, good point. And I'm wondering we're, we're kids in a candy shop. We got to get some guys here on the show to be doing some of the work. I, already I mentioned, of course, Mike and and uh, uh, Dave eighty seven JT and um, oh gosh, um, Rick K three IND. Um, there's some, some really cool things, and I think if we can kind of get multiple projects going, we can have ourselves a heck of a little landscape of, uh, of um, a homebrew station. Anyways, um, maybe we've been chatting back and forth pretty quickly here. Anybody have any comments relative to the anatomy diagram here? This is, uh, this is kind of like a blue sky, but it's pretty close to the ground. Um, I think it's a lot of this stuff is readily achievable. Any any observations? 
All right. Well, I'm surprised Mike doesn't have some, some more ideas. I know we've talked about other things offline. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mike's <laughs> he's pro- probably trying to save his cell battery. He's out yeah. camping. He's out camping again. Hey, Joe, uh, what? Hey, Mike, yeah. go ahead. Okay, just one thing I kind of noticed that maybe is incorrect in what you were talking about as far as the precision local oscillator. It's the VFO that's free running that uh, you really need more stability for, and that runs around 2.4 uh, megahertz. Uh, the mm. DDS VFOs probably would give close to enough stability, and uh, if you wanted to use your precision oscillator, then use that as the, the master oscillator on a DDS VFO. Mm-hmm. Well, why couldn't it also be, why couldn't it be the, um, I'm just sliding down to our VFO, why could, maybe this is what you said, it would be the uh, the 2.4, unless the VFO, so what I was yeah, that's think- the VFO. That's the main frequency determining thing. We were incorrect. We said 7.68. Well, what about we've got a crystal right now that feeds into the TX mixer, right? 7.68 yeah. megahertz. So the stability of that uh, with a crystal isn't too much of a concern, I guess. No. No, the main thing is the uh, the variable frequency oscillator. Yeah, good point. You're right, Mike. Mike. Good point. Mike, 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 Mike. And it's not even we- Wednesday. We we need feedback, you know. Yep. That's what happens when you go open loop. Speaking of open loop, Joe, why don't you? What, Joe, you had a couple of points that you wanted to kind of talk about today. If you could, we're running low on time, but maybe pick one and and uh, talk about it if you could. We've got yeah, well, listed here. Yeah, I, I will. I, just a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, built into the uh, SW30 is a one in four thousand one uh, diode in series of the 12 volt uh, power, DC power line. It's to prevent uh, reverse uh, polarity uh, problems. If you hook up the battery backwards, you'll zap the radio. Um, another way to do it, and uh, the schematic shows the darn thing backwards, is to use a uh, 1 in 5817 Schottky diode um, in place of that. That's about half the voltage drop. So if you're operating with marginal voltage, it uh, it works a little better. Another scheme I've used that I like um, is to use a uh, multi-stage circuit. Cheap components, uh, each of them's less than a dollar. You use a transorb, which is a power zener across the uh, the power line, um, with the the cathode connected to the plus side, mm-hmm. the anode connected to ground. What this does is that uh, it gives reverse polarity protection because if it's uh, if the voltage is too high, the transorb breaks down. Uh, the one I've chosen is 16 volts. And if the uh, battery is connected backwards, it's a simple diode to ground to short the 12-volt line. And what saves your cookies is that you put a positive temperature coefficient thermistor, a PTC fuse in series, that automatically opens up when uh, when it sees a high current. So it's a self-resetting fuse. Very handy thing, only two components, um, about a dollar's worth of components. So you get uh, several different kinds of protection circuit. I've built this into a number of my uh, homebrew projects. And uh, the reverse polarity thing is very good. And if you ever go mobile, sometimes uh, you get high voltage transients that can zap radios. This is a quick way to get around that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, I've not used the trans- thing. 
I've not used the Transorb ever before. You obviously have. Um, I've not even ordered it, but uh, I would imagine it's a straightforward design uh, uh, application of a component. Do you know yeah. of another circuit, uh, it, you know, in our world that that uses Transorbs? Oh, they're used in various things in mobile applications. They're they're really just a high power zener with a very sharp knee. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen them designed in the mobile radio stuff. I saw them first when I worked for um, uh, Clegg Radio, ISC, back in the 70s. Mm. They were looking at putting them in. I'm, I'm not sure if they ever did, but that's how I got turned on to them. Okay. We have, we have them all over the place in our medical devices, George. Used them all the time. Oh, very good, Craig. I, I had no idea. But it makes a lot of sense. In a, in a medical device, you want to have a lot of extra protection in your electronic circuits. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Um, I didn't want to just uh, kind of leave this, but if anybody has a comment about the uh, about uh, Joe's uh, circuit protection ideas, just speak right up. Uh, how would the PTCs be for just general fuse replacement? They're pretty good, really. They. Um I'm not sure what the life is. I've I've zapped them dozens of times and not had them cause any problems. What they are, it's a positive temperature coefficient thermistor um, that uh, normally has a low resistance, but when it sees a an overcurrent, um, it it uh, it heats up and because it has a positive temperature coefficient, it uh, instantly goes or in milliseconds goes to a high resistance state to uh, to protect the uh, circuitry downstream. Hmm. Works pretty well and pretty quickly. Again, Jim Corchy used that in one of his circuits and kind of introduced me to it. I think in, he used it in a number of his circuits, actually. Um, um, oh, good. You put the part numbers there. Good. Very good, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I put the digi-key numbers. Oh, They're just some yeah. typical ones. Yeah. That's good. Hey, Craig, um, what... Uh, just a little bit of background here. Of course, I mentioned it up above, up above that up above, right? we wanted to have a. Uh, to have a uh, Anthony, did you, Anthony you, did you did you have something that you wanted to say? Your keys down. Already, the um, we we'd mentioned Craig's uh, minimal key or minimalistic uh, keyer. Um, and uh, we wanted to just kind of share what's kind of coming down the pike. I think it's almost ready. Is it not, Craig? <clears throat> um, <laughs> or maybe not. I, I, no, I, I hope it is, George. I'm, I'm just getting the – I've ported the code uh, from uh, another one, of course, and uh, my, my easy key or two, and I made a new printed circuit board, which should be here tomorrow. Uh, the first one, so I can start doing some debugging on that. But it's such a simple board and simple circuit. Uh, I don't envision a problem with the board. And um, it started out with the original one, the, the, the Easy Keyer 2, um, and that would work. I actually have it built into a unit already, and it works. But it's just a little too big for and a lot of the parts are taken off, and it just spare board space. So I decided to make a new little board and tailor it uh, and actually make a, a new pick as well. Uh, smaller, an 8-pin pick instead of a 18-pin pick. Uh, so it's just going to take up a little board, more, less board space, and uh, 
no speaker on it or anything like that, so it feeds the audio directly into the audio chain of the transceiver, just like we want it to be. Um, so it's it's going to be a, a neat little unit uh, that can virtually be mounted anywhere. Uh, I was thinking about it being mounted in the top cover with a button pushed through the top, so you can just push down real easily on it. You don't have to worry about the pushing the button and the whole rig sliding away from you. Um, and if uh, people don't want to use uh, multiple messages or anything like that, you can get by with just one push button. And uh, the board will hang on by just putting the push button through the top cover, putting the screws on the top, and that will hold it in position and just run the wires from there. So really simple. Uh, this is a, a full function keyer, but it's not as complex as some of them. Uh, one of the claims to fame and my other little easy keyers is that the whole uh, instruction manuals on the back cover and the, on the bottom of the unit I have a little silk screened uh, instruction manual telling you what commands uh, that are in it so uh, this one uh, uses the paddles to change speed uh, real quickly you push a button and tap 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 and it, it goes real easily and the other main menu uh, commands are also there but uh, nothing complex, uh, you don't have to haul out the manual to get at it. So that's the whole purpose for it. And we've had uh, various people. That, this is going to be uh, kitted by the four-state QRP club, by the way. Outstanding. Uh, I just made arrangements with them again, and uh, they're excited about it. They've had a lot of people ask about an internal uh, keyer for other units. And so this is going to be available for other rigs, too, in the future. But uh, this will be the first shot at it. Uh, it also has a voltage regulator on it. Uh, in the case of... The SW30, it does not have an easy 5-volt tap inside, so I was doing it with some resistor dividers, but it's kind of asking for trouble for people to try to figure out what those values should be. Mm. So I'm going to put a little voltage regulator in this one so you can put anywhere, anywhere from 5 to 12, hopefully. I'm going to test that uh, into it. Uh, hopefully, I'm using a pretty small voltage regulator. I don't want to burn up too much with heat there, but uh, hopefully that'll work. Mm -hmm. And uh, it should be nice and simple, and uh, it should be a good one to go along with uh, with a rig like this. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's and it's through whole parts, too. Not All surface through whole parts. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Absolutely. Hey, Craig, quick question. Why is it that you chose C1 to be 30, uh, 0.33 microfarads? It's the input. Uh, it's the capacitor on the input to uh, U1, the voltage regulator. Okay, that particular value was the value was specified that went along with the voltage regulator I picked. Uh, it doesn't have to be that. It could be another value. I'm just experimenting with it. Uh, probably could be another value just as easily. But it was a fairly small value. I normally I put like a, a 10 microfarad and a 0.1 on the input and output. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a minimalistic value again. Nice and small. Didn't have a great big electrolytic on it. Oh, and this is point. apparently what was sufficient for this particular voltage regulator. If I may interject, um, I've, I've worked in the uh, commercial uh, industry, shall we say, uh, TV games industry at one time. And uh, as long as you go with known manufacturer's parts, that works fine. But uh, if you go with off-brand chips, sometimes they need the bigger capacitors. Mm. But TI, National... Uh, and the other Signetics, um, they all work well. But if you go with some off-brand regulators, they might need more capacitance. Hmm. Yep, I'm looking at looking at the spec sheet of the particular one I'm looking at, and I think that's the value, but I'll verify that and make sure we have enough capacitance on the front, you know, large value and small value for 
uh, high and low frequencies to make sure they're all filtered out properly, so the the, the pickle properly or op, operate yeah, the, properly. Yeah, the point is, point is, as long as you go with reputable manufacturers, that's fine. But if somebody tries to play cheap Charlie, like the company I worked for did, and went with some uh, off-brand manufacturer, that's when you run into trouble. Particularly with the Chinese these days, it can be an issue. Oh, don't I know it. We got bit by that several times in our medical device company again, too. I have had to watch them like hawks. Uh, but I'm using digital key parts here, so it should be good to go. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, all right. And by the way, that, that wasn't a criticism by any stretch. I was just curious because I use, I personally use a lot of different combinations on my designs, sort of like whatever I happen to have a lot of here in stock. And... Um, like you, whether it, you, know, you take a 0.1 and a 10 microfarad to handle both the oscillations and the kind of low-pass filtering characteristics, but oftentimes the manufacturers do offer their, their suggested uh, values too. But then um, it's based on current, load, and voltage range that's being uh, used as well. Hey, Joe, here's another question for you right there. Sure. Um, the, uh, the BS-170, or Craig, you might have a an observation on this too. I was I was listening to one of um, uh, Bill Mira's uh, back episodes of um, uh, solder smoke during my ride back from um, from being on the road, and um, I forgot who whether he or Pete made a comment about uh, the four zero six seven three the dual uh, dual gate FET. Uh, uh, transistor MOSFET, uh, yeah, MOSFET, a staple from before, and they mentioned, and I, I used to love that transistor. Uh, that was kind of back in the Heathkit days. Um, they had mentioned you can take two of these BS one seventies or maybe something similar and put them back to back in parallel or some ways to get the dual gate equivalent of that four hundred six seven three. Does that ring a bell? I've heard of people doing that. I wouldn't do it for any RF application. The uh, the the uh, gate capacitance uh, is a little high. You might get away with it for low frequencies, but uh, okay. Um, I'm used to the 40673s up at VHF and UHF. Yeah. Um, certainly wouldn't work up there. Okay. Just a just a passing thought there when I saw Craig's BS170 there. All right, Craig, thanks a lot for... Does anybody have any questions about uh, Craig's easy key or two I? I is you might internal. mention an approximate price. It probably is approximately 17 right there on the web page. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have uh, I have the thing minimized on my screen and I can't read the fine print. Uh-oh. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Craig. That's uh, I'm looking forward to that coming out real, real soon, too. Okay, let's uh, let's get into the uh, the main um, the main stuff here. The RX mixer with the SW30. So, um, oh, and by the way, just so that to, to to complete the loop on on Craig's keyer, or Craig's uh, blank accessory enclosure, the link is there on item number two, where it says first a few notes. So there's where you can click to get to Craig's page. Um, and again, I anticipate that they're going to go pretty quickly. So I'm, I've got my, uh, my check written out, and it's going to be in the mail tomorrow, Craig. The, uh, 
So it's just aa0zz.com. I don't see where you have it listed, but real simple. This is my call.com, and that'll get you to my webpage, and all the instructions are there about PayPal or email yep. or uh, send me a check. Yep, and there's a link there under Black Accessory Enclosure Kit. So just okay. click on that link, and you'll be there. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Well, let's, let's get into, Joe, let's get into the, uh, the uh, RX Mixer. And what I did, well, first of all, again, um, major kudos once again to Dave Eck, NK0E, um, for his, uh, back in 2000, he had done, uh, um, he had done a version of the uh, Elmer 101 series of instructions and so on, and he did just a nice, simple kind of theory uh, explanation of, of uh, what we're talking about here for tonight. So I borrowed from there. And credited him and linked to his uh, original materials. You want to check there if you want to see some good background on, on resonance and components, and of course the circuits, uh, these circuits here. But Joe, what I did was include the um, instead of just being, I think we have it as part seven in our manual, where we talk about the mixer, which is shown like in the third diagram down. It's shown as U1 and, and the uh, the lattice filter. Is um, is included the antenna, um, or the receive side of the antenna that that uh, has the TR switch in there? Um, maybe can you just take a few minutes and kind of go through that and kind of explain, you know, where the antenna comes in, where it says RF out, curiously, and how it comes down and through the. Um, the TR switch and then over to that 5K linear pot going into the mixer. That that I thought was a pretty uh, pretty interesting uh, path, and it has a couple of subtle component uh, concepts to it, if you know what I mean. Absolutely, yeah. This is something that's kind of evolved in the uh, the low power community. Um, trying to remember where I first saw it. It might have been uh, um, Wes Hayward. Mm -hmm. originally came up with it and he had he had variations on a theme but the idea is that um uh, you can do uh very fast tr switching by uh, just looking at what's really happening at the um, the output um amplifier uh q6 is the output amplifier of the transmitter um and when you're in a class c transmitter when you're not transmitting it's basically an open circuit with just some stray capacitance to ground. So if you look at RF, um, where it says RF out on the schematic diagram, that's the antenna. Mm -hmm. RF coming in that hole there goes through a low-pass filter, uh, which is a ladder filter, a couple inductors, a couple capacitors, and goes to the collector of the transistor. Well, since a transistor is basically an open circuit, you can pick off that, that spot right there and uh, go over to the receive to the receiver, um, and there's a very clever thing there. If you look at the um, the inductor uh, RFC3 and the capacitor C40, they're a series resonant circuit at um, at uh, 10 at uh, 10 megahertz, mm -hmm. 10.1 megahertz. So the signal that's at the collector of the transistor, the uh, amplifier, coming through the low pass filter goes directly into the uh, receiver there with a relatively low loss. Um, since the the uh, low-pass filter, I'm sorry, the 
the series resonant circuit is peaked at the received frequency. Mm-hmm. Now the cleverness comes about when you transmit. Um, when you transmit, there's a high voltage, uh, as much as twenty uh, some volts peak to peak there at the collector. Theoretically, about twenty four volts peak to peak, which then goes through that circuit, and so you don't zap the receiver. There are a couple diodes. There are four diodes connected back to back there, and they conduct uh, with the RF, so that they prevent you from getting much more than about 1.2 volts, actually 2.4 volts peak to peak into the receiver. So they protect the receiver. And there's a 47 picofarad capacitor there that uh, acts as a relatively high circuit so that it doesn't detune the transmitter too much while you're transmitting. Um, Some of the original circuits, so it's a very clever way of doing transmit receive automatically and very quickly because the diodes turn on and off in uh, nanoseconds. Um, some of the original circuits had uh, only uh, one, or, uh, had only two back-to-back diodes there, uh, one for the positive uh, part of the cycle, the other for the negative part of the cycle. The issue with that was that uh, strong local RF could get in there and cause um, um, harmonics to be generated and spurious products from oh. multiple signals. So if you use two diodes, you you jack up the uh, the voltage there, so that you need really strong local signals to get um, to drive you to nonlinearity, and to cause spurious signals to be generated. So a very clever tweak on the circuit to get uh, good performance and um, not compromise you too much. Now if you're operating, uh, if you have a uh, uh, two transmitters on 40 meters, one on, or yeah, if you have two transmitters on the same band, one on phone, one on CW, you will get some bleed through. You'll hmm. get some uh, interference, but generally speaking, not. So, very, very clever circuit. Might also mention D12 there, the uh, 33 volt uh, Zener diode. Mm-hmm. That uh, doesn't enter into the transmit receive, but that's a clever thing that's been added to many QRP transmitters, it um, uh, limits the peak voltage applied to the transistor. So that if you have a, a very high uh, SWR and the voltage tries to go higher than 33 volts, it'll clamp it to protect the output transistor. So mm-hmm. another cleverness thrown in there that uh, mm-hmm. costs very little and can, uh, can save a uh, transistor if you inadvertently transmit into a high SWR. You know, there's good, a good clever uh, circuit. Oh, it is. Yeah, indeed. And another another thing that kind of came to light when I was uh, playing around with modifications on the, uh, the what's called the TX power amplifier buffer. I forgot what they call it in a soft rock. Uh, I call it the TXPA. Uh, it uses a similar kind of output uh, configuration and, and TX, uh, TR switching. Right. Well, not the TR switching, but the the the, the resonant circuit equivalent of C40 and um, the RF the RF choke. The the, the low pass filter up above L3 and L4 are of course tuned for the frequency of interest for the rig. In this case, as you said, it was 10 10.1 megahertz. So it's a low pass filter that rolls off above 10.1, of course. And um, what um, 
On the receive side, it also has a tendency, of course, since the signal is coming down the antenna into the RF out, you know, into the one side of L4, um, that that low-pass filter tends to low-pass filter that signal coming on in on the receive side. So that has a tendency to also be a um, a filter for your receive side to, in this case here, keep out higher frequency types of uh, signals or noise that might be coming in your antenna. Yeah, like like in my location where I yeah. look across the, the river in Philly and I see all the TV transmitters oh, 10 yeah. miles away, all that VHF energy. Yeah, I've experienced that myself over in, when we were doing the uh, the field operations in, in that uh, community center close to your home. Yeah, yeah. Can I give a quick comment, George? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Craig. I think the values you have are C40 and RFC3 are for 40 meters rather than the 30 meter rig. Um, I happen to know that because I was doing that very calculation today, finding the resonant frequency for 40 meters, and I came up with 47 and 10 micro, uh, micro Henry's. Oh, I think yeah. it's like 22 or something for the C40, just in case somebody is watching this and gets confused. Oh, that's a great point, actually. Um, what uh, David Eck um, was talking about was the SW40, and I also saw that down below when we talk about, um, oh, there it is. A 3 megahertz VFO and a 4 megahertz IF. Those are different for our rig, too. But good point. It's interesting that you caught that. Um, I'll have to well, correct that. attention. Yeah, and indeed. Also, Joe, doesn't the uh, doesn't that LPF, the, the L3 and L4 low-pass filter, offer an attenuation of the uh, RF signal coming in? Attenuation of the RF signal? No, not really. Hopefully it's, not much. Well, it's an insertion loss, is it not? It is, but uh, it's in the transmit path too, so you don't want much loss there. Right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine it's more than a couple tenths of a dB most loss okay. at the operating frequency. Yeah, good point. All right, and then uh, just uh, kind of continuing. If you see um, the the circle with the B in it, that connects down to the circle with the B in it below. They happen to be on two different sides of the overall schematic. And just so that you kind of keep, you know, you are here kind of thing in mind. Now that signal comes into that 5K linear, um, that 5K potentiometer, which essentially is is just taking the RF signal and attenuating it um, before it's entered into transformer T1. And this is another, I think it's another one of our, um, uh, those, those transformers, is it not? The IF cans, yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, you can see the capacitor on its secondary is um, a nicely convenient, uh, um, uh, providing a tuned, a tuned filter to peak the 10.1 megahertz signal that's coming in and being introduced to the mixer. Um, alrighty. So, Joe, maybe uh, let's, let's get down to the crystal filter. I've always found that, you know, the, the mixer... The mixer itself is, uh, is is interesting. We've talked about it before. I, I can't see who else has got their PTT going, but um, Rick. Oh, okay, Rick. Did you have some, a comment? Uh, yeah, actually, two comments. Uh, I've gone ahead and built uh, at least to this point, and I noticed uh, when we were instructed to go ahead and peak T1, uh, 
that I get no peak whatsoever from one side of the uh, from full clockwise to full counterclockwise. Uh, I get no noticeable difference in the signal. So I'm wondering if, if that's just normal. Uh, what are you using as your uh, as your signal source? Uh, using the actual transmit signal. Unless there is a, uh, unless the there, there, there must be in a testing section. I, the Mike wrote, Mike wrote the testing section for us. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. Mike, well, I'm looking here. What was the, what was the uh, procedure for getting a signal into the receive side so we could adjust T1? Do you recall? Uh, it is in the uh, instructions for building it. I say the jumpers, and uh, that was the whole purpose of building most of the transmitter before going on the with the receiver, so that we had a test signal. The peak on T1 is very broad, and I, I wouldn't worry about it at this point. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Uh, I was just wondering whether I uh, had completely missed the boat. The other comment I had was listening to you discuss uh, all of the uh, PR switching, uh, it seems to me that uh, it points out how difficult it is to design and operate a multi-band transceiver. Uh, how, how much of what you do is very dependent to the particular band that you're on. Uh, frequency dependent resonance, of course, by definition. Yeah, it depends on the kind of the, the implementation, specific implementation that's done on the TR switching. This one is quite frequency dependent, as, as Craig rightly pointed out. Um, the uh, uh, there are other schemes, and frankly, the ones that I have in mind for the TR switching up in the um, the anatomy of a homebrew station diagram. I anticipate that that's going to be a slightly different kind. Actually, one that uh, um, I, I like the way that Elecraft had done theirs on the K2. Is the is what I was modeling my experiments off of, but you're right. Um, always got to be aware there. There's some really tricky uh, frequency dependent uh, uh, types of things. Yeah, I might interject. Um, Zach Lau tackled this. He was uh, he's one of the AWRL guys. He built a multi-band radio for the work bands, and he had a uh, huh, a reasonably complicated set of uh, L's and C's and several different networks so that he actually was able to do a uh, three-band TR switch using this basic scheme with a whole bunch of cleverness. can't recall what the rig was, but it was in the handbook uh, at one time. I looked at that and I scratched my head and finally did some modeling and convinced myself that it really worked. But uh, that was a, a clever multi-band uh, uh, implementation of the same thing. Mm -hmm. The um, oh shucks, I was going to mention something. Anyway, the mixer, the mixer operation is we we've discussed the mixer operation down in the transmit buffer, so I didn't think that we wanted to go too much into that. But we've got the the main signal coming in, and uh, let's see. In this case here, uh, the 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 RF signal is coming in. I have to go all the way down to the diagram at the bottom of our page. Do, do, do. Yeah, so we've got the RF, the antenna signal coming in, and it's uh, being applied differentially to pins one and two of that uh, U1, and we've got the VFO signal 
that we talked about in the very first installment that's being entered into the other part of the mixer, the other uh, uh, the other port, uh, pin 6. And once again, the output comes along on pin 5. Um, besides some impedance matching, Joe, that, that that's offered by uh, C11 and C12, I think, um, the... Uh, Actually, it's probably C12 and RF choke one, the RF choke. The Actually, it's, it's a series resonant circuit consisting of C11 and series with C12 and the RF choke. So it is a series resonant circuit, but you're right. The impedance matching is by uh, choosing the right ratio between the two capacitors to reflect the proper impedance into the uh, crystal filter mm -hmm. so that it's matched. That's, a, that's another cleverness there. Yeah, it is. And um, the uh, the filter, can you comment on the filter's uh, operation, I guess? The crystal filter, it's, it's, we, always, we often see these, and uh, uh, how it actually is able to do that filtering is quite amazing, and it's quite uh, striking when you look down at the one of the, um, actually the last spectrum analyzer screenshots, down at the bottom that Mike had done, it's amazing how you see a plethora of signals coming out of the mixer, as expected, yet coming out of the crystal filter and going into um, into the next stage, it's dramatically uh, reduced, and you, for the most part, oh, just see the interest of, of interest. And that's why it's so important um, in in the case in what you know major contribution that you had in the in the actual kitting operation, Joe, was the sorting. Um, the filters to yeah. ensure that everybody matching got those filters. Damn crystals. Yeah, matching them. Yeah, the the uh, that is another uh, good circuit, and I, uh, uh, the name of the uh, topology escapes me. I think it might be a uh, cone filter, C O H N. Basically, <clears throat> it uses the series resonances of the crystals. Each of those crystals looks like a series resonance circuit at about 7.68 megahertz, um, which would be fairly um, fairly sharp. But by choosing appropriate values of the capacitors to ground, C13, C13 and C14, um, you're able to modify the um, high-Q resonance of the, um, of the crystals to form a band-pass response, which is... Um, uh, at the desired frequency, and it's somewhat wider than the individual resonance of this of the crystals. Um, and because they're so high Q, it's a uh, it's a builder that has very steep sides, as George mentioned, so that um, everything outside the bandpass is uh, 40 dB or so down, and the bandpass is on the order of about 500 hertz. So very very clever design, and a number of articles in the ham literature. Um, Wes Hayward did a number of them, and there have been uh, some others lately if you want to delve into the theory. But it's, uh, it's a crystal um, ladder filter with um, um, pretty sharp response. The only downside is that it tends to roll off a bit slower on the high side, but uh, still very good for CW and an excellent way to get uh, good selectivity with a minimum of components. Very, very good circuit. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that uh, reminds me of what Craig said a moment ago. Since we have a series resonance 
that involves C12 and, and R of choke 1. Um, I'm wondering again, since the, the, uh, the difference between an SW30 and an SW40 is um, maybe this one too. I didn't check the components, so I'll have to check to make sure that this... Well, this says crystal filter 7.68. So I, I know, but, that... I, but I pasted in 7.68. Ah, okay, okay. I didn't check the other components, okay. but I'll make sure yeah, that well, that's correct. Yeah, the, the frequent the components are frequency dependent. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you just have to pick the right ones for the frequency. Yeah. They've they've been designed in. So if you look at the the uh, values for the given rig, um, it it'll work out. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned I, for the I given guess... uh, uh, frequency that bands are. I mentioned, uh, I, I call it a crystal lattice filter before, and it's not that for sure. It's a crystal ladder filter. Uh, just a slight correction there. And it's a, did you mention that it's one, it says here that it's one kilohertz wide. Is that, um, is that indeed the case? Is it one kilohertz? Okay, I thought it was, huh, I thought it was 500 hertz. Okay, kilohertz. That, that makes a little less, uh, gives you a little more tolerance and, right. In component variation, but it's still very good. Still gives you, with um, CW, it gives you a single signal reception mm -hmm. because it um, it rolls off the frequencies on the other side of zero beat. Hey, it uh, comes to mind that every implementation of crystals, and especially here in the crystal filter area, the uh, the designer or the board layout uh, uh, person always has the crystal cases grounded. Can you uh, tell me stories about that, Joe? Why is that important? Uh, yeah. It's important because uh, uh, it's, a, it's a tight bandpass filter. Well, two reasons. Number one, there is straight capacitance to ground. And if you don't have the crystal cases grounded, you can have uh, uncontrolled strays. Uh, but more importantly... If they're not uh, if they're not grounded, you get straight capacitance between the crystal cans. So rather than the filter filtering, it can blow by the filter by capacitive coupling between the cans and uh, destroy the uh, bandpass characteristics, so that all frequency signals can get through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey Craig, do you use um, do you use crystal filter uh, uh, crystals? In your ZZRX40, is it called the, the latest uh, latest issue of QST, the cover article? Uh, actually, that's just a direct version uh, receiver, George. So I don't even need to have them come right out of the mixer with a very basic low-pass filter, and uh, right into the LM386. Very ah. dirt simple, uh, almost nothing there. Uh, I got rid of all the complexity to make it real simple. Okay, good. I wasn't sure. I, I, um, I have yet to. I, I received my kit. Thank you very much. And um, I'm really um, it's on the bench and ready to be put together. So hoping it'll be a short order, but uh, to to get it built. But I'm looking forward to it. And I really uh, there's a couple of mechanical aspects of that I really in, uh, have been inspired by. So I'll check it out. All right. Um, uh, yeah. Question there, Obi. Was that you? No, that's me again. Oh, I okay. think it's Mike. Okay, Rick, go first. Uh, I was just noticing, uh, just looking at the overall diagram when I first looked at it, that you're using RF chokes as 
inductive components. And I'm surprised. I would figure that they would be relatively, since all they're supposed to be is chokes, they'd be relatively low Q and probably not real close tolerance uh, inductances. But they seem to be apparently close enough uh, that you can uh, actually use them to filter. Apparently, Joe. Yeah, it is. It's a uh, it is a low Q circuit. Um, it only has to be, <coughs> excuse me, it only has to be close to resonance. Uh, so the tolerance and the the low Q don't matter because uh, it is you're you're absolutely right it is a low Q circuit so you can get away with using a sloppy RF choke with uh, without serious problems. Hmm. One less coil to wind. Absolutely. I think, I think the one in the TR is much more critical where it's trying to trap it there. It is. It is indeed. And uh, yeah, yeah. Enough said. Yep. Uh, Mike, you had a comment? Yeah, I was going to say a little more about the crystal filter in C13 and 14. Uh, by changing those values, you do change the bandpass uh, of the filter. And uh, Allocraft, in a number of their rigs, uh, makes use of that to uh, change the amount of selectivity that the uh, filter has. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have a KX1 that uh, does exactly that, so that you can vary the uh, the width of the bandpass. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, simple way of doing it and good. I didn't notice that, and, and I, I haven't really considered my KX1 circuit. Interesting. You got an RTFM. There read, you go. Read the friendly manual. Uh, there you go. I think the K2 actually does the same thing. Another manual to read. Okay. Um, All righty, then. What... Uh, I, I, a question here? Oh, sure, please. Um, this has those 612 mixers that seem to be all over the place. I, I'd read something about they have terabaud dynamic range. I'm not quite sure what that means in this context or, or how it's compensated. Joe, do you have experience with the 602, the 612? Uh, they're, they're quite the staple of us uh, homebrewers over the years. I think low cost gives... Uh, uh, makes that attractive, and there's obviously some higher cost, better performers. But is this good enough for us? Yeah, it, it is generally good enough. You're absolutely right. It is low cost. Um, it gives simple circuits. It's it's difficult to use in really high performance designs um, where you're going to be uh, operating in contests and you got a lot of strong nearby signals. But for uh, casual operation. And for uh, portable operation, where you want to have uh, low current drain and simple circuitry, it's adequate. You, if you've got a neighbor next door with a KW, uh, <laughs> it's certainly going to not be a very good receiver. I wouldn't know but, anything about uh, like that. Yeah, you wouldn't know anything about that. For general use, um, they're they're quite good and they're cheap. So, yeah. so I think you're saying that the, the, the ladder filter and such is, is is quite good in peaks, but it can be overwhelmed by by strong signals, basically. That's exactly right. The uh, the mixer can be overwhelmed mixer, if you have strong yeah. signals. Yep. All right. Thanks. Now, another nice thing about the 602, 612 uh, vintage is that it, um, well, let me do it this way. One can build a, um, a discrete double balanced mixer with um, a couple of toroidal uh, transformers and uh, four diodes. Um, 
and this has been outlined in EMRFD, the, electri- uh, the experimental methods for RF design, and also some other designs that we've had in our, uh, you know, in our ilk. Again, uh, Jim Quirchy's designs come to mind as he's, he's been doing that. Um, and those tend to be, I think, um, well, I got the impression that those were better performers for the double balance mixing element. But the Absolutely. 60- the 602 um, and NE612 or SA612, they also have some additional functions in the cir- in the chip, Joe. Uh, is it they've got a, an oscillator capability? Is it? Yeah, yeah, they they do. They have a built-in uh, built-in circuitry so you can make an oscillator in one chip. Um, if you use a double balanced mixer with the the toroids and the uh, diodes, you need um, you need a, a separate oscillator. Mm-hmm. And it has to have um, uh, plus seven dBm, um, which that's, is uh, that's a big pretty signal. strong signal. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it it requires a little more uh, local oscillator energy and a more complicated circuit. But you know you mm-hmm. get better performance. So if that's where you want to go, that's uh, that's what you use. But for simplicity and for good enough design, the uh, the simple. Uh, 602, 612 stuff works uh, quite well. Mm-hmm. And do, I've, do you get some gain on these as well? Indeed, you do. Uh, whereas you get lost with the uh, the yeah. diode mixer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now the now, the input power that you mentioned, 7 dBm plus 7 dBm, um, that's easily achieved usually with um, an oscillator because you normally have scads of power coming out and you can uh, overdrive it. You can drive it most ideally with as, as a square wave, even. Um, but it's un- it seems to me, or maybe set me straight here, Joe, is that you got you got two ports. You got a two signals coming in that you're mixing, and we say that one requires a lot of power and it can be supplied easily by a, a square wave um, local oscillator. Don't you need a similar high power level for the signal of interest, the, 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 the RX signal coming down the antenna in this case? No, not really. Why? No. Why? Well, because, uh, because it's a mixer. It, it performs uh, numerical multiplication. And uh, the only detriment to using the double balance mixer is that it has about a uh, 6 dB loss. Mm-hmm. But it will still work in the micro microvolt region. However, if you want to get to the uh, down below a microvolt for um, uh, really weak signal operation, indeed, then you need an RF amplifier in front of it, as as you're alluding to, mm-hmm. so that uh, since you can you can get above the inherent noise level of the circuitry. Mm-hmm. So that. Uh, that's another complication of using a mixer with loss, as opposed to a mixer here uh, with some gain. You you've got to pump more, a little more signal in, although not not uh, scads of signal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Rick, Rick. Yeah. Uh, just to show how old I am, <clears throat> this all reminds me of the kind of conversations that went on back when the phasing method of a sideband transmission. Uh, was originated back, what, 40 years ago, 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this whole mixing business came up because you wanted to have a double-balanced mixer to do your sideband suppression. And you went crazy trying to make sure that you had properly center-tapped 
transformers that you balanced up the uh, the diodes and selected them for best suppression. And I'm sure we would have killed in those days for a single circuit that did all of that. Oh, right. absolutely. Yeah, I was around back in those days, too. Um, my favorite was the, uh, the phasing network that Barker and Williamson came up with. It was a phasing circuit and a little octal plug, and they punfully called it the 2Q4. 2Q4. I don't get it. Turn it around. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh. <laughs> All righty. And bi-directional, I guess. You Indeed. Know, and and it, it's actually more than 35, 40 years ago. It's more like 65 years ago, back in the 50s, is when the phasing uh, method was um, was was it was really used a lot um, in some of the, those that vintage of receivers. And then Collins finally came out with the uh, the resonators. Alrighty. Um, the mechanical filters, you mean? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, they were good. Any other questions on the um, on the re uh, the received mixer? I mean, um, first of all, I'm wondering. Can we just have a show of hands here of mic buttons? You don't have to say anything, but just uh, click your mic button if you've uh, if you've been building your circuits and you're at least up to this point here or beyond. One, two, One, three, three, four, five, five. Oh, oh, outstanding. Outstanding. I love it. You guys are great. All right. We're going to, you know what we got to have, Joe, sometime is a, a bit of a contest for those who have completed it and can demonstrate something. I don't know how it would work, but I'm just really so pleased that uh, we're seeing so many people that have been building up the kits. Maybe we can do a 30-meter um, operation. There you go. Um, if you rem I don't know if you remember, but uh, Chuck uh, K7QO, had a 30-meter, I forget what he called it, operating activity or something, mm -hmm. where for X amount of time, he encouraged everybody to get on 30 meters and to uh, contact each other. And they they uh, they all commented on uh, one of the mail lists um, to say, hey, I was on and I worked these guys. And, you know, trying to popularize the band is a very, very good band. Mm -hmm. Maybe that'll be a great conclusion to the, the whole series here. Good idea. Um, as we do wrap up today's session, um, I just want to comment, please, by all means, Mike. Yeah, the uh, RF gain control I saw on uh, the chat with the designers Yahoo group some time ago. Someone was saying that their pot wasn't working. Yeah. And one thing I noticed recently in uh, actually getting on the air with my SW30 is, and I had a computer speaker plugged in for the headphones, there's a lot of noise that comes out of this rig. And uh, as you adjust the pot, that noise does not go down. It just affects the uh, received signals. So right. it can kind of give a false sense that the pot isn't doing anything. It's not a volume control. Oh, that's, that's an excellent point, yeah. I remember him, too, saying, however, though, that it seemed like it was discontinuous. He would move it, move it, move the do move the control, move the control, and all of a sudden the noise would either appear or disappear. And it, I don't know if that would, what you explained would, would explain that condition. But, I, I'm uh, not sure it would. I do feel a little difference in the uh, resistance to turning at one end of the pot 
from the other, and that may have given just the feel that that was happening. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. I didn't look it up. I don't know if he had uh, had purchased the kit or would build it on his own. Um, the pots that we provided uh, were all brand new, of course. Uh, and I kind of think it would be unlikely that, um, what do you call it, deoxid would clean up uh, the garbage on the, um, on the inside of that pot. So I'm not sure that was the cause. Alrighty. Joe, you just, you, you took your finger off the... Yeah, I'm trying to type in the chat window. Oh, okay. uh, I'll be back briefly. Alrighty. So as we do kind of uh, kind of roll toward the end here, um, wanted to point out, and I mentioned it a moment ago, but I wanted to point out the really nice spectrum displays that Mike had captured when he was building his, and he commented on on them and some excellent commentary. So when you look at it, um, the uh, uh, those are nice. Those are interesting to study, but of most interest, like I said before, is the contrast in signals between the two last, uh, the last two screen captures. One that depicts the uh, the output of the of the mixer with lots of signals. Maybe he he labels ten of those signals, and he actually puts the frequencies on there. And it's interesting because you actually can calculate where those 10 signals are, you know, how they are generated from when, from where they, from whence they, they come. Um, and the very last uh, diagram, which is coming out of the crystal lighter, the crystal lighter filter um, with the main signal of interest, uh, of course, is that um, signal number one, uh, I guess that's a 10.1 megahertz. I'm not sure. I can't see it right now. But um, you, you see the signals there, and it's really quite a dramatic demonstration, visual graphic of, of how that portion of the circuit works. And it's a very integral part of the receiver design, of this receiver design, and, and, and many others. Okay, that, that kind of brings us to the end um, of the show here tonight. And I'm wondering if anybody has any uh, comments or questions about uh, the topics we've covered here today or um, other uh, kind of other inputs that you might like to provide uh, parts that you found along the way that we could look into as we head toward the next show in two weeks from now. Dave, uh, 87JT, are you still with us? Um, I see you there. Uh, you had a comment about, I didn't get a chance to read it, about a use or your intended use of the blank um, the enclosures that, that Craig is offering. Um, is that suitable to talk about here? Yeah, I think so. I, I was looking at ways to attach that. And I came up with it. It looks like what you do is take the blank enclosure, leave the top off it, and turn it upside down and attach it. And then I was looking at ways to get at things in there. I'm, I'm, I've currently got a couple hinges I'm going to try so that you can actually hinge the thing up and then put all your uh, cabling interconnection whatnot down near the hinge and bring it up. Anyway, that's what I'm looking at. Really interesting. Send the me a picture, will you, when you get it done? I'd really be interested in that uh, advertising and showing other people what uh, ideas are like that. I'd appreciate that. Okay, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> no guarantees it's going to work. All righty. 
Well, okay. Um, I'm not sure what comes next time. Probably a little bit farther down the uh, down the signal chain on the receive side, and we're closely we're, we're closing in on on the uh, getting the entire circuit entire transceiver working. So that'll be a nice milestone to get to. Uh, we'll also see next time some uh, some um, refinement of the anatomy of a homebrew station. And I've got some ideas in mind how we can handle the uh, um, all the different information that's going to be presented there in the form of different projects. And it'll be kind of cool. So I hope, uh, uh, I hope you all enjoy that and spread the word about that and We'd love to have more people participating here or being present here with us and offering their comments and such. And uh, the more the merrier. So uh, this is Wayne. I had one more uh, sort of question is uh, there used to be an RIT kit for this. I think they've had and anybody had thoughts of doing that. I guess I could, you know, do it on a board myself or something, but. That's a great addition to that accessories uh, diagram, the anatomy diagram. I uh, don't recall. I do recall that there was such an RIT kit, but I don't remember the specifics. Anybody else? No, I don't remember the specifics, but I built it. <laughs> it's probably on one of my old computers. <laughs> well, if anybody can find it, send it over to us. Uh, or post, you know, post a link to it there on the uh, Chat with the Designers uh, list. I, I think I've got it. I'll, I'll put it on the list here. Excellent. Thanks, Wayne. One more comment. Sure. I was just sitting here with full, the screen full of the, the schematics of all, the entire unit and thinking about my antique eyes <clears throat> and how I every time I look at the list of all the parts that have to be done in the next segment of the build, kind of groaning at the, all of the soldering and component selections and putting leads through tiny little holes. And I looked at it and I thought, now how many, how much of that component count could you reduce by having a single chip in there that's uh, running SDR software? Well, I don't know. I'm going to take a look at it uh, in just a moment. And um, Joe has an interesting story that doesn't take too long, Joe. I think, didn't you have a friend who used to remove components until things stopped working and that was his optimization? Oh, it wasn't a friend. That was uh, Madman Munts. Madman Munts of Munts TV. Oh, that was okay. how he designed his products. He had uh, he he would take TVs, television sets, and he would have his employees remove parts until it stopped working, and then they they would put those parts needed back in, and and uh, that would be his design process to make a simple, cheap television set, and that's why they called him Madman Munts. And was that a uh, was that a good method? Do you think? No, <laughs> because the thing was barely working, and uh, I knew from friends who tried to repair TVs that they would tear their house, try tear their hair out trying to fix those months TVs because they were all just barely working. <laughs> Alrighty. And now that I'm looking at the manual, uh, um, uh, Rick. The next, the next section that we talk about is the receive product detector, but um, but after which isn't too much component, too many components. But after that is the audio components, and there's a there's a goodly amount of components there. 
But the good part about that is that we're almost to the end then after that. So it's almost like the final final hump to get over that, uh, to get all the components uh, mounted. So not to worry. We'll get through. We'll get you through it. It's only a hobby. Yeah. All righty then. Well, Joe, um, this has been an interesting night and uh, a, lot of, a lot of ground covered and a little bit of a new format for you and me to be talking at the same time. Gasp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, it was very anyway. natural, talking over each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, like when you talk to your wife. Yeah, with the headphones on. So, um, <laughs> or maybe she wears the headphones, I don't know. Obi no, your plugs. Yeah. Anyways, why don't you take us home, Joe? Hey, I got a, I got a question, okay. George. If um, a man makes a statement and his wife's not present, is he wrong anyway? Um, by definition. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in. By definition. Don't tell Debbie. Nope, nope, I will not. <laughs> okay, not. let's take it home. All right, as George mentioned, it has a, been a different kind of uh, chat with the designers. We're trying to open things up a, uh, a little bit more here. Uh, give some legs to the project, as it were, uh, describing how to um, add on to the uh, SW30 and uh, some more project ideas to go along with it uh, for the future so that um, so that we can build on this. A number of different ideas. You can look over the block diagram and uh, uh, look it over, but uh, some neat things I've, I'm looking forward to working on as, uh, as the year progresses uh, in between my National Parks on the Air uh, outings. You also described just a couple bench tips, just some, uh, some things I thought might be relevant to uh, to improve the uh, uh, power protection uh, circuitry to uh, to go along with the uh, the SW30 things I've found handy um, and in in the um, line of uh, um, things that are add-ons uh, Craig AA0ZZ described his uh, uh, simple key or easy key simple kit that uh, is a definite uh, add-on I'm going to put in uh, my SW30 to uh, go along with it. And then we got into um, a description of the uh, the next part of the build process, the uh, receive mixer for the SW30. Described the circuitry and uh, some of the ins and outs of uh, the trickery involved there and the cleverness, uh, what's involved. And had some um, some tips from uh, Mike WA8BXN, who has been our um, has been our uh, trailblazer in uh, doing this uh, uh, stepwise build, describing uh, some things to look forward to, things to look out to, and some uh, tips for making it work. And uh, he provided some excellent uh, spectrum views to uh, uh, drive home. How, how the uh, various uh, signals interact and uh, are filtered out, cleaned up, and uh, made good in the uh, in the SW30 design. Um, pictures worth a thousand words, and those uh, spectrum pictures are always very very good. And um, in um, in closing, I'm going to say I hope you all enjoyed this tonight. As I say, we're trying to uh, broaden things a little bit here and to get people thinking about um, what to do next with the SW30. Fun project and uh, uh, fun to be involved in, uh, and I'll get mine done. 
but this is my second one. I already have one, but uh, this is um, this is a good good thing. And uh, maybe we'll even get some uh, people on the air with it as we go along. 73, uh, see you all next time in two weeks. This is uh, Joe, N2CX out. And George saying 73 to you all too. And I'm going to go catch the last inning of my beloved uh, Orioles are playing and they're losing. So I'm going to rush off here tonight. 73 all, thanks a lot. See you next in two weeks. <laughs>